Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So I once heard a wise man say, you are not the subject of your salvation, but you are the object. That doesn't minimize God's love. That simply says that you are not the subject of it. You do not get to choose the terms of your salvation. God chooses, and you get to receive the action of that. For members of this church, I hope that that sounded pretty familiar. That was actually spoken from this pulpit last week. The text that we will be going over today goes hand in hand with that. Last week, we learned about the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord. This week, we're going to be going over the fact that our joy is in God's salvation. You guys are going to have to bear with me because we're, I know that maybe not a lot of people in this room have studied Habakkuk, so what we're going to do to fully understand verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3, we're actually going to have to go over the entire book. It's only three chapters. So I'm going to do a quick flyover, give you guys an understanding of the background, the history of Habakkuk, go over the first three chapters so we can get to this. So just a quick background. Based off the, the text itself, Habakkuk was written sometime before the Babylonian invasion of Judah. Considering the questions and the complaints uh, given by Habakkuk in the first two chapters, we can reasonably assume that it happened sometime at the end of or shortly after Josiah's reign in Judah. If you remember, if you have some memory of what happened with Josiah's reign, he found the book of the law. There's a brief revival in Judah. Um, After he died, they slipped back into into the sins that they were once in. Also, to give you a little context of where we are compared to where we normally are in Jonah, this is actually written about 160 years after the book of Jonah. Nineveh was actually the capital of Assyria, which we've learned from from Bryce, and based off of uh, the things that we're going to read here in Habakkuk, uh, after they took over the northern kingdom of Israel, they weren't really a threat to Judah. What we're going to see is that actually the threat that Habakkuk feels is coming from Babylon, not from Assyria. So Assyria won't even be mentioned in this, even though as we're going over Jonah, we see that Jonah didn't even want to go to Nineveh because it was the enemy of, of uh, his people and, and it was the biggest threat to him. Now we're not even going to hear the name of Assyria or Nineveh. Habakkuk is, is actually written in a way that we actually get to see and understand a conversation that happens between Habakkuk and God. The first two chapters are beautifully written back and forth between God and Habakkuk. We actually see in uh, the beginning of it, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that Habakkuk is actually bringing complaints to God in the direction that Judah is going. However, he does so in a very arrogant way, as if God is completely unaware of what's going on. We see in Habakkuk 1, 3 through 4, and remember these verses, because we're going to keep going back to these verses, but Habakkuk 3, or I'm sorry, Habakkuk 1, 3 through 4, why do you make me see iniquity? This is Habakkuk talking to God. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and content arise. So the law goes paralyzed, and justice never goes forth for the wicked. For, for the wicked are surrounded by the righteous, so the justice goes forth perverted. However, God just doesn't let Habakkuk sit, sit on that. He doesn't get to, just to dwell on his own bitterness. So God answers to Habakkuk in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Unknown to Habakkuk, God has already answered the prophet's prayers, but not in the way that Habakkuk would want them answered. 
we see in Habakkuk 1, 5 through 6, look among the nations. This is God's response to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see wonders and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans, that would be the Babylonians. I am rising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth and seized dwellings not of their own. However, astonishing, and I say astonishing because you're reading it, but honestly, this is probably how we would respond as well. Habakkuk responds to God again, and he complains again. We see in chapter 1, verses 12, and then going into chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk shows that he cannot understand how a holy God can use such a wicked nation to punish one that is less wicked. That sounds really harsh coming from Habakkuk, but it's something we do almost daily. We don't understand how good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. We're going to see a response from God here that we could probably use in our lives as we do that. So Habakkuk in uh, Habakkuk 1.13 says, You, this is talking to God, You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? God answers Habakkuk again in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. We see him say, or we see that God's response to Habakkuk will remind him that God is holy and that God will not allow evil to go unpunished. However, the sentence for that evil, we're talking about the Babylonians, the sentence for the evil will always happen in God's timing and by his choosing. We don't get to choose those things. He reminds Habakkuk that the righteous will also live by faith in God. In chapter 2, verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about the wicked. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Also within his answer, we're going to go over these really quickly, but within his answer, he actually goes through and lets Habakkuk know that he knows exactly the evil that the Babylonians are doing, and he's not going to let them go. He gives five woes, and these five woes are the five ways, the five things that God is eventually going to punish the Babylonians for. So the first woe is that Babylon Babylon will answer for its greed, and we see that in chapter 2, verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. The second woe is that Babylon will answer for using their stolen wealth for their own protection. That's chapter 2, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Woe three is that Babylon will be punished for building their wealth through bloodshed and exploited labor. We see that in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Woe to him who builds up a town with blood and founds a city in iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. The fourth woe that we see that Babylon will be punished for is Babylon will be punished for their debauchery towards other nations. That's in 2.15. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. You gaze at their nakedness. And the final one is probably the most severe thing that they're going to be punished for. We see the fifth woe is that Babylon will be punished for following false gods. And that's in 2.19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. It's amazing looking at at just the, the path of history. It's amazing to look at the path of the Old Testament. So you see Assyria rise up, 
and God chooses Assyria to punish Israel. And eventually, Judah's going to have to be punished as well. But instead of using Assyria to continue on and attack Judah and take over Judah, he, God knows that Assyria needs to be punished for their sins as well. So he rises up another nation more powerful than Assyria to punish Assyria, and then on top of that, to punish Judah. And then eventually we'll see in Daniel that Babylon's not going to get away with it. They're going to be punished for all five of these woes, and eventually they will be taken over by the Persians, a more powerful kingdom than themselves. So it's just a continual, we, if you really look at it, nobody gets away with evil. Nobody. Nobody's going to look at a holy God and think that they're bigger and better than a holy God. You are going to be punished for your evil. And we see that in the big ways, and we see that in the small ways. Thankfully, though, we uh, get to chapter 3. It's not very upbeat so far, but we get to chapter 3. It's going to get a little bit darker in our text, and then we're going to get to, to some, some lighter things. So we see in Habakkuk chapter 3 um, that we, we get a prophet that goes from a man arguing with God to a man that has matured and is now pleading for God's mercy and focusing on his power. Chapter 3 is known as one of the and I'm not a poetry guy, but one of the best po poems within the Old Testament. It's just, it's much like if you read through Jonah's uh, prayer again that we went over the last two weeks. It's much like that prayer. It's focusing strictly on God and God's mercy. You get to see a lot of God's power. At one point, he talks about how he's, he's literally shaken to the bone to seeing God's might. And that brings us to uh, 3, 17 through 19. By the time we arrive at the end of this book, Habakkuk, of Habakkuk, we see a drastically changed man as he communicates with God. So I'm going to read over those first three verses there, 17 through 19. And like I said, this, this, really I picked this because you have to have a home chapter. You have to have like a home text that you keep going back to while you're up here. However, we're going to be referencing everything we just went over over and over again. So in chapter 3, verse 17, we see, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vine. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the, field, the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Like I said, a little bit darker there. But then we graciously get verse 18, which is, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. And we're going to start our time, start our time, with verse 17. We'll be going over these three verses. So verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and, field, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What we're seeing here is that Habakkuk is now focusing on like the full weight of the prophecy that was just given to him in the last two chapters. In verse 17, we see that the events that he is writing about are actually really no small thing. The complete destruction of life as he knows it is being revealed to him. Not only that, but his society will continue to go down the destructive path that has already gone down. But even the very way that they eat and the wealth that they've built up will be stripped from them as the Babylonians bear its full weight against them. What we're going to see, actually, if you look at the history of Babylon attacking Judah, there's actually kind of three waves of Babylon doing this. The first one, it went actually 
as far as an invasion pretty peacefully. Uh, Judah surrendered pretty quickly. They only took a few back to Babylon, put in a puppet king, things like that. Well, then that king rebelled, so Babylon comes back, and they attack him again. It gets a little bit worse. And finally, by the third time they have to come back after a third rebellion, they completely destroy everything. They go as far as tearing down the temple. That's what we're seeing here. It's not just an anticipation of a season of destruction either, but it's actually going to be a long-term event, as he's been told. Not only will the fruit not be produced, but even the bud that eventually will produce the fruit is not going to grow. So what we're seeing here is actually going to be a season after season after season destruction. It makes me think of uh, Joseph. What we're seeing here is Habakkuk coming to the realization he would know his people's history and he would know that Joseph actually built up the, the grain bins within Egypt so that he could feed his people and bring his people into Egypt during a famine. Habakkuk's realizing that's not even going to happen. They're not even going to have time or the ability to raise up an abundance of food to take them through this season. It's going to be destruction. We see this also throughout history. I'm a big history nut. I really like history. And something that we're, the best way that it came to mind while I was going over this is that this, this reminds me of what's called scorched earth. If any of you are history people out there, you've probably heard that term. What it is, is basically when either an invading empire, an invading army goes into to an enemy land, or the people that are being invaded or retreating will do something called scorched earth. And what they do is they destroy everything. And the reason they destroy everything is to not allow the opposing enemy to be able to use anything. So you, you completely level towns, you, just, you burn all your crops, you get rid of any resources that the enemy could use as you're going through this. It's estimated that during World War II, this happened, or this not estimated, it did happen to the Soviet Union, but it's estimated that around three million Soviet lives were lost. That's just civilians to policies like scorched earth. So it completely devastates the land to a point that it just starves the civilians. It starves people that are living within the land. That's what Habakkuk is looking forward to. Habakkuk knows that unlike the wars that we know today, where it's usually either opposing ideology going against a different ideology or it's you know, a madman taking over a country and starting to take over the world, unlike our wars that we can think of in modern history, he knows that the destruction that's about to come to Judah was self-inflicted by Judah for their sins and for turning away from God. As he wants to use the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, he was now going to promise to use the Babylonians to conquer Judah. It's a pretty dark passage. It's pretty heavy. It's pretty weighty. However, thankfully, it doesn't end there. Habakkuk's prayer continues. As he comes to the realization of the destruction to come, he continues with verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This text should strike us as absolutely amazing as we study the entire book, as we look at an overview of the entire book. We start the book of Habakkuk with a prophet actually accusing God of turning his back on the sins of his country. We start Habakkuk with Habakkuk actually telling God how he should run his world. He questions everything about God tells him that he's turning his back on his people, telling him that he's completely lost touch with what's going on. Now, 
what we see is Habakkuk maturing in the Lord. We see Habakkuk now relenting to the fact that God is ultimately in control and he ultimately knows what's best and will guide history in a way that he always knew that he would. And it's a way that will fulfill his ultimate plan of salvation. Habakkuk gives us, a Christi- gives us as Christians an example of how we as Christians should be growing in maturity. So the Christian life, the Christian in life, will never be fully mature. I don't think that's a shocking statement. We're never going to be fully mature. From the time of our conversion until our death, we will constantly be maturing and constantly be learning more about our God. So that begs the question of what exactly is Christian maturity? We're going to go over two different things that I've chosen kind of to hit on that is going to be kind of how a Christian matures. The first one of these is that a Christian matures by gaining of knowledge, by the gaining of knowledge. We have been lovingly given the word of God in a form that we can read and learn clearly. We see that in Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Just, just sit back and think about that thought for a second. God created everything through the power of his word. But the last thing he did in creation was create man and woman in his own image. Something completely separate from the rest of his creation. It was something that can now think. It was something that could learn. It was something that had a soul and that ultimately that soul longed to know more about God. Not only did he, he didn't actually just stop at that. He created us with the ability to communicate. I'm up here talking to you. You're understanding what I'm saying. But on top of being able to communicate, he gave us the ability to write the written word. All of these things came from God. What was the purpose of all of these things coming from God? It was so that he could inspire a group of men to write down what he wanted them to write so that we could know about God's character, so we could know about God's history, so that we could know what the plan of salvation was. On top of all that, he actually imparted one part of his three parts, God's three parts, to indwell in his chosen people so that we could have a more full comprehension of what we've learned from the Bible. And to add just one more level of this, he also inspires amazing men like Bryce that stands up here Sunday after Sunday and teaches us more and more about his word and about his truth. That should just humble us to no end. However, it's important for us to to focus on the fact that just stopping at learning is not enough. The knowledge that we learn must penetrate our hearts and our minds. If we just build up knowledge but don't apply that knowledge to our lives for our maturity, it's going to be stunted. Our joy in life when we do that goes from a joy in the Lord to just a joy in knowledge. We actually see this in our text. When we compare the Habakkuk of 3, 17 through 19 to the Habakkuk of 1, 2, or I'm sorry, 1, 3 through 4, we see that Habakkuk had knowledge. He knew God. He knew the law. He knew what iniquity was. He knew that the righteous were being surrounded by the wicked. 
The only way that you know those things is through an understanding of the law. You don't, you don't know that you violated the law unless you know the law. So he had an understanding of that, but instead of allowing that law to penetrate his life to a more full understanding of God, he was stopping and he was choosing to accuse God of, breaking the, these, or of ignoring the breaking of these laws. And we know that he was actually right in his understanding of it as far as what was going on in Judah because God's punishing Judah for the very same things that he's complaining about. So it was a right understanding, it was a right interpretation of what was going on. It was a wrong heart. We can all think of men and women who build up a reservoir of knowledge and who just crouch at the door waiting for someone to slip up or misspeak so that they can swoop in and correct a petty mistake. Listen, I'm begging you, don't be that Christian. Be a Christian that has a desire to build up other believers. Be a Christian that comes alongside struggling brothers and sisters and helps them mature. Be a Christian who corrects mistakes. We're called to correct mistakes. There's no denying that. Be a Christian that, call, that corrects mistakes but does so to unify the body and lead others back to the fold. Don't be a Christian that tears down with weighty knowledge but uses that knowledge in love and has a desire to know God more. Through the book of Habakkuk, we actually get to see, a man, or see an example of a man growing in his knowledge of the Lord and applying it to his life for more maturity. By the time that we get to this passage we are studying right now, we get to see a man that we wouldn't even recognize, like I said, in 1, 3 through 4, and that's an amazing thing. There's a second thing that we're going to go over here as far as Christian maturity, and the, the second thing that we're going to go over, it's we, we mature in Christ through our changed daily behavior. We get example after example of changed daily behavior and examples of these, in Paul's writings and all of his letters. We see in Galatians 5, 16 and 17a, but I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. We see again in Ephesians 4, 17, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And the final example I have here is Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When we come to Christ, we are a new creation. Our desires and our behaviors change along with that calling. They should change along with that calling. If our joy has changed then what should we take joy in? We're no longer taking joy in the world. We're no longer taking joy in the things that we once did when we were lost. So what do we take joy in? We take joy in the same thing that Habakkuk takes joy in. The God of our salvation. That's our ultimate joy. Just as there is also a danger, just as there is a danger in just building up a reservoir of knowledge, there's also a danger in relying on our changed behavior. Look, even unbelievers can change their behavior. There are thousands of criminals right now that are up for parole that will be released from prison because of their good behavior. Is that a good thing? Yeah, that's a good thing. Does it show that they have a changed life in Christ? No, it does not. It shows that they could change their behavior. Our behavior should not be changed just so that we look good to the outside world. It should not 
be so that we can build up a bank of good works either. We're not going to rely on our good works. It should not be just to please our religious leaders because that's what they say that we should do. Our changed behavior, or we should change our behavior, because there is a loving God that sent his son to earth to be truly man and truly God. He lived a perfect life, fulfilled every prophecy told about him, was crucified on a tree and died, but then he rose again, and he is now sitting at the right hand of God. We should change our behavior because we knew, or because God knew us before the foundation of the earth and called us lovingly out of darkness to himself. We should change our behavior because we are commanded to out of a changed heart, given to us by God, not just because we want to. However, none of this inward change is possible without the work of the Holy Spirit. Until you have fully given your life, to the Lord in faith alone, through Christ alone. You cannot change your behavior as you're truly called to do. Anything else that you do is just a whitewashed tomb. Now that we have kind of a basic understanding of what Christian maturity is, let's apply this a little bit to the text that we're going over. We're actually going to go back. The world that Habakkuk is detailing in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 is a world that actually often sounds familiar to us today. Those of us that have been called out of the world and moved from darkness to light, look around at the country and the world as we, or as we see uh, changes becoming quick, and we often lose words for, to describe how sad we are. Habakkuk details the events going on in Judah. He sees violence. He sees strife. He sees iniquity. He sees God's laws being ignored and mocked. He sees the righteous being surrounded by the wicked. Does that sound familiar? So what should our response to that be as we're seeing it happen? Again, it should be the same as Habakkuk. We rejoice in the Lord. We take joy in the God of our salvation. We don't look back at the good old days. There's a lot of Christians right now looking back at the good old days. We want to live in the time of leave it to beaver. That time's not here. It reminds me of Psalms 137, which is actually pretty nice because it's, it's a psalm about the events that we're going over today. The psalm, Psalms 137 talks about how the Hebrews used to go back to a river and they would sing the songs of their old country and they would get so sad about these songs that they would weep. And when they would weep, they would hang their lyres on a willow tree. Don't hang your lyre on a willow tree. We need to press on. We need to take example, an example from Paul. What would Paul have done? When the authorities would tell Paul, we're going to throw you in jail. Paul would say, I'm going to preach to your jailers. When the authorities would say, we are going to kill you. Paul would say, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When the authorities would say, fine, we're going to set you free, Paul would say, to live is Christ. That man was impossible. Be impossible. The danger in our lives is that we often live comfortably. 
we see objects and relationships as our ultimate joy and our ultimate fulfillment instead of the God who created us. Our marriages start to go well. We find ultimate fulfillment. Our kids are behaving for once. We find ultimate fulfillment. We get the promotion at the job that we love. We find fulfillment. We're in the moral majority in our country. We find fulfillment. So what happens if the fulfillment is found in the creation and not the creator? If we find fulfillment in our marriages, we will ultimately be left wanting. No man and no woman can ultimately fulfill your life. As much as I want to be the end-all, be-all for my beautiful wife, she's going to be disappointed. What happens if our children get sick, if we're finding ultimate fulfillment in our children? What happens when they get sick? Or if our children leave the home and go down a path that we always pray that they would not? What happens if, sadly, one of our children gets taken from us? If our ultimate fulfillment is found in our children, where are you left? What about our jobs? What if that's suddenly taken from us or we don't get the promotion that we've been praying for? If our ultimate fulfillment is found in our work, what will our response be to losing our job? What's amazing about this is those three things that I just discussed with you, we learn in Genesis chapter 3 that God's already stripped from us. The three things that God cursed are what? Childbearing, your marriage, and work. We often look at those things as a curse. I mean, they're called the curse. But if you really study it and you really get down to it, it is a blessing. The reason it is a blessing is that we are fallen man. If we look to the creation rather than the creator to find our fulfillment, we're going to be left wanting. And so God cursed the three things that he knew, because he knows us, he created us, he cursed the three things that he knew we would look to to find fulfillment. So instead of being able to find fulfillment in our spouse, our marriage is what? It's supposed to be pointing to Christ. Instead of finding fulfillment in our children, we raise our children to love Christ. That way they point to Christ. Instead of finding fulfillment in our job, we do our job as if for Christ. All those things are stripped from us at the beginning of our Bible. At the very, in three chapters in, those things are taken from us. The only place that we can find ultimate fulfillment is in Christ and Christ alone, the God of our salvation. All other objects in life can be ripped from us in a second. If you think about it, not to be negative, but it takes one car crossing a double yellow line to take every single thing that we just talked about. The only thing in our life that can never be stripped from us is the God of our salvation. And honestly, the only thing that matters in our life is the God of our salvation. There are many sitting in churches today, in fact, there are many sitting in this church Sunday after Sunday that, Sunday that hear these words and hear the words preached from this pulpit. 
and will think to themselves, I have a reservoir of knowledge. I behave well. I take joy in the Lord. I have said the right prayers. I have checked the right church boxes. But their hearts are not changed. The joys are in making sure that the boxes are checked and that the right men are appeased. But when it's all said and done, none of that matters. Because nothing done apart from the Lord matters. So I'm begging you from here right now, I'm begging you, change your good behavior. Your good behavior will ultimately damn you unless it is for God. Look to the Lord of your salvation and see that the only thing done for him by his power can give you ultimate fulfillment. In closing, I've got two questions, really four questions for you, just to reflect on through the week. My first question is, why are you maturing? Is your joy knowing God more and learning more about his law? We see in Psalms 1, 2 that, and this is talking about the wise man, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or is your maturity just to gain knowledge? There's a great quote by Spurgeon. I feel like I need to say something about this. So, a lot of us like to go to secondary sources, and that's not a bad thing. A lot of us like picking up a good book and reading through a good book. But if you pick up a good book and read a good book, and it takes the place of this, put down the book. Spurgeon once said, visit many a good book, but live in the Bible. Do that. I also think of, uh, I once listened to a, a, it wasn't even a sermon, it was a John Piper podcast. I think, I could be wrong on the title, it was something like, five things I would tell myself at 25 or something like that. It could be four at 20, I don't know. I think it was five things at 25. One of the things that the last thing that he said, if he could go back to himself at 25, he would tell him, never go a day without being in the word. And he often, he said, I often get that. I often tell people, you need to be in the word every single day. Never go a day without being in the word. And people will say, well, I'm busy. You know, look at him and say, did you have breakfast? They'll say, oh, yeah, I had breakfast. Breakfast is not going to save your soul. This is going to save your soul. Knowing more about God, learning the plan of salvation through his word is going to save you. Put down the Pop-Tart and get in the word. (laughs) The other thing about maturity is are you changing your behavior because of a changed heart? Or are you just doing it because you want to be a better person? I got news for you. There's no such thing as just doing it to be a better person. The only way that you are a better person is through Christ. My final question is, what is your ultimate goal? Or I'm sorry, what is your ultimate joy? Is your ultimate joy the creator? Or is your ultimate joy the creation? There is only one thing that can never be stripped from your life. Just remember that. There's only one thing, and that's God. That's Christ. It's the Lord of your salvation. Everything else will eventually be torn from you, whether you're taken from it first or it's taken from you before you go. Everything will be stripped from you. 
the only thing that will not be is the Lord of your salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you with humble hearts. We come to you with thanks that you are the God of our salvation. If it were left up to us, none of us would dwell with you forever. We thank you for being a God that has sent his son to die for us, but not just to die for us, but to rise again and to be seated at your right hand. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the men that you've inspired to write your word down. We do not worship them. We worship you. We worship you for all the things that you have done through history. We worship you for being the God of our salvation. As we go out of this place, I pray that it would be a message that penetrates the heart, that as we go about our week, that it would change us in a way that would push us to desire you more and more. It's in your name that we do pray. Amen.